we are delighted to welcome Barwon Health Foundation as sponsors of Room 64. If you would like to support palliative care services at Barwon Health, please contact the Barwon Health Foundation at barwonhealthfoundation.org.au. Welcome to Series 3 of Room 64 and I'm here with Jen Walsh, the uh, Volunteer Coordinator at the Bowen Health Palliative Care Unit and today we're talking to Marilyn Dolling and uh, I'll get Marilyn to actually introduce, if you don't mind, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story, Marilyn, and your um, involvement with the Palliative Care Unit at uh, Bowen Health. Great. Thank you, Christine. My name's Marilyn. I'm... um a mother of four, a grandmother of um, 11 and a great-grandmother to two. 11. <laughs> 11, Woo-hoo. which is wonderful. Um, my cancer journey goes back to my own back in 97 with bowel cancer. And then in 2004, I lost my father and my sister to cancer in the uh, last week of January. And in between the two of them, my husband was diagnosed with acute um, aplastic anemia. And we started another journey and I had a mum to put in aged care then because I was still having treatment and couldn't care for her. Um, Roger was um, very sick with that. We nearly lost him in the June. But at that stage, Pellcare wasn't involved. I knew about it, but at that stage, it was very unclear exactly what Pellcare was or what it could offer. We didn't have any plans. We were told to get a solicitor, so we did and got... um, a power of attorney put in place and when he got very sick we put a guardianship in place because I had to do that for mum and for my sister and we just sort of naturally did it because that's what the solicitor suggested. Um, he recovered and we both decided to really sort out a bucket list and what we wanted to do with our lives. So Marilyn, one of the uh, themes for this episode is advanced care planning and, you know, we're hoping to launch this episode during Advanced Care Planning Week. Can you tell us a little bit more, a little bit about your experience and Roger's experience with advanced care planning and how that, um, how that impacted on you, what the, you know, what, what that meant for you and, and Roger? Going back to our support groups, we found the things that we were talking about was the things we needed to put in place. How did we cope? How did our families cope with a diagnosis, with living with it, even end of life? You know, what what sort of things we need? And we were starting to say, look, I've done this and this and this. I've made a bucket list and I've told them this is what I want and I've told my family what my expectations. And we even talked about what we could expect and what we would like ourselves and celebrated some of the different differences that we had. And so Roger and I started putting lists together. We had a book that we put things in that carried on from my dad and mum were very specific about what they wanted with their life and how they wanted their death to be. And it was my responsibility to make sure that that happened as far as they were concerned. That's interesting. So your your parents had their head around that, you know, probably wasn't called advanced care planning for them, but they had their head around that, that sort of, that need for, or that, that desire to think about what I want my end of life to be Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. That's for sure. In fact, the day mum died, she'd been a fairly healthy lady and she came into 
emergency that morning and I met the ambulance in there. And when they took her in, I realised the night before she hadn't been very well. She, she was 97. And I just had that feeling that she was getting close to the end of her days. Mm. And we talked about it often, you know, just how she wanted her death to be, how she wanted her last days. And when they took her in, the doctor on duty said to me, um, now, is your mother to be mother for resuscitation? And I looked at her and grinned. And I said, you ask her. I said, I know what she's told me, but you ask her. And she said, no. And, she, and he said, well, what were you going to say? I, I said, I was going to say the same as Mama. That's why. I, and she said, gee, I'm glad you said that. She said, I thought I could trust you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good to see her happy to have her wishes respected in that. And then she died later that night. Isn't it interesting that whole thing you just said then about having your wishes respected? Isn't that really important when when you're at the end of life, you know, to to know what your wishes are in advance and making sure that the, your family, your loved ones, the people that you care about know what those wishes are, what's important to you, that they are respected. Absolutely. And to, I'll never forget the look on her face. There was a smile, even though she knew she was dying, just to know that, oh, yeah, I was going to go along with her. And we had the one most wonderful day, knowing that, talking about the things that we, we'd already planned that we were going to talk about, and, and that was good. So after that, Roger and I started putting things into place, and then um, Charlie Cork, who was, um, I think he was head of intensive care at Barwon Health, started putting together a My Values document, talking about where people looked at their values and what they expected in their life and as they got to the end of their life. And I was one of the consumers with Bowen Health at that time who were reviewing these documents, looking at them. And I was excited that um, something like this was happening, but I couldn't get my head around putting down in simple sentences a whole lot of information that was would take pages of me writing it. And I really struggled with just finding the right words, even though I'd done it many times myself, making it succinct enough for someone else to pick up that document and know exactly what I wanted. And also for my family to know that that's what, what I, and a lot of it was a lot more than medical treatment. It was the, the way I wanted to be. I, wanted, I didn't want to be locked in a room. I wanted to be able to see, see out the window. I wanted to have friends. I, I wanted to have that communication with grandchildren. I wanted my music. I wanted the things that were precious to me. And to try and put all that down just in a couple of sentences in a document was hard. But then at the same time, my GP, or it was around about the same time, said to me that they He'd been talking to some people at Barn Health who were doing an advanced care plan and Jewel Mann was going to come out to the surgery and would Roger and I be one of the first people to sit down and try the, this new advanced care plan, he said, because he thought it might answer some of the questions that we had. Jill was able to get out of him the words that expressed exactly how he felt at the time and what he wanted. And that was, it took a whole load off my shoulders because he wouldn't tell me. He'd just say, you know what I want, You're f I'm fine. Mm. You can do it. You can look after me, you know. So do you think having someone to talk you through 
that is independent or that you've got the option of having someone independent to help you with that makes a difference? Do you know, I think it's vital because what Roger and I, we updated ours regularly as we got older, as our circumstances changed, uh, even as family circumstances changed, the people that we had were trained, they, they knew what they were talking about and they knew how to get those words from people and to put them very specifically because I know a lot of people say, I don't know what to write. And even if you do write it, you don't really know how it's going to fit in medically, how it's going to fit in in, in a hospital system and just how viable it is. And it just gave a real um, good feeling of knowing that these people can actually help me exactly what I need and get out of me what I'm trying to say. And that can change as your condition changes or you get other comorbidities, other things wrong with you that can impact or family circumstances that that can impact the, the choices that you make. And then to go through it with your GP afterwards to sign it off, he was then aware of what we had. Um, to be able to give it to the hospital when you go in to know that it's there. So if you you can't say it or the other person that's with you can't, you've got a document there that gives them guidance. Yeah. So that was important. And as Roger's condition deteriorated, um, we changed yet again, um, particularly in the last six months and when Pellcare became involved remotely at that stage, we started talking about when do we change again to a directive where you sit down with the healthcare doctors and the doctors that are treating you and talk about just how things really are, how they see things are going, what their expectations are for you and how you feel about that and to make very, very clear directions about yes or if these are the options I've got, you can do this or that, or no, look, just leave that. And this is, I want to be get comfortable, I want to be kept out of pain. In the end, I'll give Roger's example. His, um, his veins had failed. He wasn't, he'd gone on a trial and the trial didn't work. And he was receiving units of blood and, and platelets just about every day, every two days. Then they, his veins failed and they couldn't give him any more. And he was so weak that he, he needed 24-hour care, which I was trying to give him at home and it was too hard. But with the directive, he made talking to the, the care doctors, they made the decision if it got too hard, he would choose to come into the care unit. So I, I could be released from a lot of the things that I was doing and getting no sleep for, where he wouldn't have, well, he couldn't have any more blood, so they'd keep him comfortable. They'd do everything they could to fulfil the wishes in his advanced care plan. But the the care would be all-embracing support and um, just keeping him, giving him the best possible end to his life that he could have in a safe place where someone else monitored the visitors somewhere else monitored did all the the hard um care of the you know the washing and the getting in and out of bed and the the monitoring and I could actually get some sleep and actually spend valuable precious time with him mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Roger and 
the man that he was and the, the stories. Tell us about the stories. I've got so many of them. Roger and I were chalk and cheese. I was the – he always used to say, oh, she's the teacher, she's the talker, she'll, she'll, do, she'll handle everything. And he would – he was the quiet one. He was a deep thinker. He was um, into technical things. He, his broad knowledge was just, just incredible. He loved travel but he also loved pottering in his shed. He loved being out in the bush. He hated being inside. If he – he couldn't get get outside and wander around the garden and try and do things or try and fix things. He wasn't happy. He didn't like sitting in a chair and doing nothing. When he recovered from his first cancer, we spent all our super and we went overseas for 12 months and did everything on our bucket list that we could. He loved music. He loved going to concerts. He loved dining. We loved travelling, but the travel was cut, so we did armchair travel. In the last weeks, he decided with our best friends that we'd always been going to have a luxury type thing. So he took out two suites opposite the beach down at Geelong and we had a night down there in these luxury suites with dinner, looking out over the water. He was too sick to go any further than the um, the balcony, but he wanted all that filmed. We sat there and ate Jaffa's and had fun and laughed and had a bottle of red between us and it was it was it was a beautiful night. He loved fireworks. In fact, for the 2000 millennium thing, we had he got um, some pyrotechnics out to Anarchy to our home there and we had our own fire display. So fireworks to him were important and on New Year's Eve, just 3 days before he he died, um he wanted to go and see the fireworks and Jen said, look, we can't, we don't have an ambulance or anything to take people to these things. But she said, let's see what we can come up with. So Jen and Mel, bless them, came to our room with some sparklers, a box of sparklers, some matches, something to drink and some blow whistles, you know, those things that pop out. But he, want, he didn't want them himself. He wanted the other patients to, that could to come out and join him. So we wheeled him outside his door. And we stood there with our sparklers and we had the best New Year's Eve. And he wanted me also to document his journey by photos because he knows I do a lot of talking to cancer patients and, and to other people about cancer. And so he wanted other people to see the progression. He wanted them to see that you can still laugh. You know, he'd be in there in the ward and he'd be, have people in fits of laughter. Um, always worried about other people. And when it came to the trial towards the end, they suggested you might like to try it. And he said, well, if it'll help someone, if it doesn't help me, well, let's do it in case it helps someone else. And that's the sort of guy he was. Man a few words, but um, deeply loving and caring and always putting others before himself. Roger has... Look, he'd, he'd never get dressed up to go to a um, party or anything... But with the kids, he would be anything. He'd be down on the floor with them. He'd be playing trains or pirates or Lego or teaching them robotics or whatever. And with the grandchildren, he dug up a pirate costume with stripy pants and a big, wide, stretchy belt and a hat and a hook and the whole lot. And he got them sword, you know, the pirate swords. And he used to have walk the plank off the off the couch on a mattress onto a mattress. And he'd play these games endlessly with the with the little ones at their home or at our place. 
And even when he was in hospital, they he he wanted this pirate suit brought in, and he wear well, he had his pirate hat on. The kids came in in their pirate hats, and from the bed they're having pirate fights. Would you believe? What impact do you think that had for the grandchildren? Like, how did that sort of support them through the experience? Well, I'll tell you how it did. Um, right from when he he died. When he died, the kid said to me, that, Nan, that's the end of the pirates. I said, no, it's not. And for his funeral, I asked everyone to bring something, including the grandchildren, that was meant something to them about him. And beside his coffin, we had the, all the pirate stuff. We had Lego things that he'd made. We had Doctor Who things. And we had all those things there and we'd already he'd already planned that during the actual service, we had a Thanksgiving in the afternoon after the um, cremation in the morning, and all the grandchildren sat around playing Lego. We'd planned all this before with his help. So I was able to give them this is how Pa loved you from when you were born. Up and, and these are all and we sat there and we laughed and we remembered. We sat in his chair and wrapped up in his rug and we still have his things. Isn't that, like, I just find that really interesting from the point of view of advanced care planning, you know, as a formal term. But for Roger, it sounds to me, uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, Marilyn, but it sounds to me that was a really great opportunity for him to leave legacy, don't know, but for for the his memory to to live on through the stuff that he's thought about and you've both thought about and planned and decided to put in place and it's enabled that to be of benefit to the children his life can still go on in them the things he's he's shared with them things he's taught them the fun things we've done Plus some of the things when he was, they used to call him grumpy at times. You know, he's grumpy. You know, what's old grumpy doing? But to know why he was grumpy, because he didn't want to let go. He fought to the end. He didn't want to let go. And that did make him grumpy at times, but the kids knew why. And it was okay. So it really does, you know, it focused that whole thing about advanced care planning. It's it's not just about you, the person that's, dying but it's about the people around you Absolutely. and the, the people you love your family your friends and and how that reinforcing how that memory can can live on we used to call it build we were building a memory bank and that bank is can be added on to and added on to and sometimes you take things out of it but um i just see the children now freely talking about him, freely enjoying using his things and even planning what they're going to do with them and, and change them. Um, it's precious. We always have such a hard time, I guess, having the conversation about palliative care, advanced care planning. Um, what would be your, if you're at a dinner party talking about the importance of advanced care planning and you've got that 60 seconds of attention. How do you explain these beautiful things we've just talked about? It's a very good question. It's hard to put in a nutshell, but I think is if you know the person, you love the person that you're caring for, or even for the person, everyone's got their own values and the own the things that they would like that are important to them. 
to actually express what those things are and to find a way of living it out. And I think one of the things that's really resonated as taking away the stigma and how big and scary advanced care planning is, is I'm hearing a lot of just the, just really simple stuff. Like it makes me think, you know, thinking about advanced care planning as somebody who is not unwell, but I can think I have the um, cozy socks that I would want. I'd want the window open. What music would I want? What lotion would I want? And it, it can even be that easy to get started. It doesn't have to be the big medical decisions. If you they talk about pal care at your end, very end days. If they talk about advanced care planning, that's in the last weeks of your life. It's something that I think we we all should do from when we're old enough to start thinking, to have in our mind, to start talking. Death's a taboo. Illness is a taboo. And I think as families, as friends, just to talk about the things that that are so important to you because we never know when our last day is going to be. And it can doesn't only affect the person that's the main focus, but everyone else around about them. And for people who have sudden accidents or, or whatever, I think it's vital right across the board. I think our personal stories are the most powerful tool we can ever have to share with people, whether it's person to person or whether it's out there wider in the community. Everyone's story is important and everyone's story is unique. And no one's more valuable than the other one because we can all learn from each other. Mm -hmm.